So Ron, Art, Art said something about exercising your gifts in choir. So, so when are the sign-ups? <laughs> I'll be there. It, it kind of reminds me, actually, of uh, Jesus' words to the disciples. You know, signing up with choir with Ron is kind of like, if I told you everything now, you wouldn't be able to handle it. <laughs> so uh, it's better that you don't know. For those of you who know anything about me, you know that I am not a sports guy. I grew up hating sports. And irony of ironies, my, my Lord and Savior gave me a wife who loves the angels. <laughs> Go angels. <laughs> so what I'm about to say to you may shock many of you this morning. It may uh, startle you. It may scare you. It may frighten you but I'm going to use a sports analogy. If they're good for anything, they're good for preaching. <laughs> the legendary Green Bay Packers coach, Vince Lombardi. Isn't that a great name? <laughs> Vince Lombardi. He used to start every season with a team meeting and surrounded by veterans and rookies alike, he would hold a football up in his hand and he would say, Gentlemen, this is a football. Isn't that a great analogy? What in the world does that have to do with preaching? All eyes riveted on him, he would simply say that one statement, Gentlemen, this is a football. And this was Coach Lombardi's way of telling everybody, all of his players, that success begins with a clear understanding of the basics. You can't move on to the, to the more advanced things if you haven't mastered the fundamentals. Folks, this is a Bible. Right? This is a Bible. If you don't read it, if you don't meditate on it, you can't preach it. So this morning, what we're talking about is a sermon on preaching. So folks, this is a Bible. The same is true in Christianity as it is in sports illustrations. If you don't know your Bible, if you don't understand it, we will become floating debris on a sea churning with the latest fads in ministry. We will be adrift. We will be awash in the latest trends. And success, beloved, is measured in the way, in human standards, it's, it's measured in a lot of different ways. But according to God's standards, how is success measured? That's what we're going to ask ourselves this morning. If God were to evaluate our lives, would we pass the standard? Would we pass the standard? I invite you to turn open your Bibles there to Second Timothy chapter 4, and in light of Pastor Wine's ordination yesterday, I got to thinking, well, what is it that we are really called to as believers? It's not just for Pastor Wine to know his Bible. It's for all of us to know your Bible. We all ought to preach the Word of God, and we all ought to live according to the will of God. Is that not true? I think that's true for every one of us. So here we are in 2 Timothy 4. Let me go ahead and read the passage, and then we'll look at it a little more closely. We're just going to look at verses 1 to 5 this morning. And Paul tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." From this passage this morning, we're going to see two fundamental duties that we need to commit ourselves to as believers so that we will be a success in God's eyes. 
two fundamental duties. So you can look at the back of your bulletin if you have not already. The handout is there. As most of you know, this is the end of Paul's ministry. This is his swan song. The Apostle Paul is sitting in a Roman prison, probably somewhere around the year 68 A.D. And he's now been in ministry for 33 years. 33 years of a difficult, difficult ministry. Shipwrecked, persecuted, beaten, famine, starvation, the list goes on and on. People had contracts out on the Apostle Paul to take him out. He had a difficult life and a difficult ministry. 33 years, and now here he is at the end, sitting in a Roman prison, waiting to have his head chopped off for preaching the gospel. And these are, these are his final words to his disciple Timothy. This is it. This is his swan song. The last chapter of the last letter he wrote. This is his parting shot. And he's leaving marching orders, if you will, for Timothy. And yes, they are marching orders because there are nine commands in only five verses. Actually, there's nine commands in just two of the five verses. Rapid fire. Boom, 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 boom. Do this, do this, do this, do this. This is a final charge if there ever was one. Paul here wants Timothy to know what his duties are. What should he commit himself to after Paul's departure? I'm going to die, Timothy, and this is what you need to do. I'm passing the baton. This is what you need to do. So what is it? What is he charging to? What would Timothy, how could Timothy be a success in ministry? Well, the first fundamental duty, you see it right there. Skip over verse 1 and go to verse 2. We'll come back to verse 1 in just a moment. But it's preach. It is preach. Preach the Word. Preach the Word of God. It is the word keruso. It's pretty plain. It means to either proclaim or to preach. It's not an unusual word. It means to herald the Word of God. And in Timothy's case, it it may or may not be formal preaching. If you look just down in Verse 5, he tells them to do the work of an evangelist as well. He's telling him to proclaim the gospel. It doesn't matter what venue. It doesn't matter if he were up in a pulpit. It's to proclaim the Word of God in season and out of season all the time. Do the work of an evangelist. Preach. Proclaim the Word of God. The word here for word is equivalent to the Scriptures. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 9 real quick, Paul says, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the Word of God is not imprisoned. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. So it's the Word of God. It's the Word of truth. In 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Word, when he says preach the Word, is the Word of God. It's the Scriptures. It's the Word of truth. It's the God-breathed words of the living God. And we live in a day and age when the Word of God has been, it has been marginalized, it has been trivialized, It has been pandered by every charlatan that I can think of on TV who can make a buck from it. And Paul is telling Timothy here, the preaching of the Word of God is the God-ordained means of saving the souls of men, women, and children. Preach the Word, Timothy. Preach the Word. You know, our, our human opinions mean nothing in the end. Our traditions mean nothing. Our programs mean nothing. Marketing means nothing. We have nothing to say to people which is of any eternal significance apart from the preaching of the Word of God. That's what Timothy is to do. Preach the Word, Timothy. 
And there are three questions that arise from this text that, that relate to this topic of preaching. When, how, and why? When, how, and why are we to preach the Word? This is for all of us this morning. This is, this is the parting shot of the Apostle Paul. This is not just for Timothy. This is for you. This is for all of you. If you want to be a success, this is what God has called you to. So when do we preach the Word of God? Look at verse 2. He says, Be ready in season and out of season. And the verb be ready really means stand ready. It means stand. Stand firm. Be on the alert. Be ready. And he says, in season and out of season. And this is a play on words here with the word kairos. It's you kairos and I kairos. It means in the good times and in the bad times. It means when it's convenient for you and when it's not. All the time you preach the Word of God in season and out. It's a proverb. In other words, you preach it when you feel like it or not and when they want to hear it or not. It doesn't matter what the crowd thinks. You preach it. You preach the Word. And notice down in verse 3, let your eyes drop there. It says, for the time will come. That's the same word. It's kairos. There's a season. There's a season coming when people will not endure the truth. So when do you preach the Word of God? You preach it when it's in fashion or when it's out of fashion. You preach it when they like it and when they don't like it. When you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. You preach. You proclaim the Word of God all the time and in every situation. You know, the Apostle Paul had no problem saying this. Here's a man sitting in prison right now, but remember back in Acts chapter 18 on his second missionary journey when he got to Corinth. You know, Timothy had gone north as well as Silas, and the Apostle Paul arrived in Corinth by himself, a city of 250,000 people, and the Apostle Paul is the only one there. And he says, I came to you in fear and much trembling. But what did he do? He preached the Word. He preached the Word. You know, we cannot allow ourselves, folks, to be discouraged or defeated by the results of our preaching. You leave that to God. You proclaim the Word of God. You just preach. And this goes for all of us. This is not just us in the pulpit. This is not for the professionals. This is you who hold the Word of God in your laps. We all have a tendency to be men-pleasers. We do. We want people to like us. We want to fit in. We want to be well thought of. We walk away from gospel confrontations discouraged and defeated very easily. And the Apostle Paul is saying, look over just a couple of chapters. In chapter 2, he says, Hey, I'm suffering hardship even to imprisonment, verse 9, as a criminal. I'm not a criminal, but I'm being treated like one. I'm in prison for the sake of the gospel. He says, but the Word of God isn't in prison. The Word of God cannot be bound despite our defeat, despite our feelings, despite our emotions. The gospel cannot be imprisoned. So stand ready, Timothy. Stand ready to preach the Word of God. The Word of God is not in prison. Preach it in season and out of season. As I was preparing this message, I was originally going to preach it and direct it sort of right at Jim there. I was going to say, Timothy, preach the Word. That goes for all of you. Preach the Word. In season and out of season. How do we preach the Word of God? Look back at verse 2. How do we do it? Well, he says, Reprove, rebuke, exhort with or in all patience and instruction. Reprove means to bring to proof. This is uh, used over in Ephesians 5.11. If, if you consider those who are 
sort of hiding and doing things in the dark, the Apostle Paul says, you know, expose them. Expose them. And that's the word here. It's reprove. It's, it's to bring to light. The word rebuke means to correct somebody who's in error. Exhort is the word parakaleo. It, it means, you've heard this word before. It could mean encourage. It could mean comfort. It means to, to come called alongside. Called alongside. And he says, do this with all patience. That is the word long-suffering. With all long-suffering and instruction. Teaching. With all teaching. These last words, patience and instruction, describe the manner, if you will, of how Timothy was to do all three commands. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. Not just exhort with great patience and instruction. It's all three. Turn back to uh, 2 Timothy 3.15. He says, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ. And then he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He says, listen to me, Timothy. Listen to this. You have known the sacred scriptures from the time of your childhood. They have benefited you. They have reproved you. They have corrected you. They have trained you in righteousness. They have made you adequate as a man of God. He says, that's what I want you to do with everybody else. I want you to preach the Word of God so that they will be corrected, they will be reproved, they will be trained. It is for the man of God. So I'm asking you, Timothy, to utilize the Word of God in the same way that it was utilized with you. I just, just as an aside, this expression, man of God, it only occurs twice in the New Testament. Over 70 times in the Old Testament. When he says, so that the man of God, definite article, may be adequate, he's talking about a very special man who is called by God to do this very thing. In a broader sense, it could be any man of God. A man of God is anyone who is pursuing after God. But in the narrower sense, the definite article defines this as a man who has been called of God to proclaim the word of God. I could preach a whole sermon on this topic, but I'm not going to. John MacArthur actually did a good job preaching a sermon on that passage, and he he called it the man of God. It's a great sermon. You ought to listen to it sometime. But suffice it to say, if, if you are a man of God, you're in good company. Old Testament men of God were Moses, David, the Old Testament prophets. They were men of God. The Apostle Paul here is saying that the Scriptures, the inspired Scriptures of God are profitable for the man of God. The point is that they're adequate first and foremost for us. They correct us. They train us. Preach them to yourself first is the point. That you might be adequate, equipped for every good work. We ought to preach the gospel to ourselves daily before we ought to try to preach it to other people. That's the point. Don't just preach it to yourselves, but allow it to change you. In other words, and and this is difficult for us, but when we share the gospel with other people, are we doing it in different ways and at different times? Or do we take our pharisaical club of the gospel and beat people over the head with it. See, the, the gospel can be utilized in a multitude of ways in different situations. And let the Word of God do its work. You just be the one to communicate it. But let God do what He's going to do with His Word. If they're in sin, confront them with the Word of God. If they're in error, correct them with the Word of God. If they're weak, 
encourage them with the Word of God. The manner in which you do it is patiently and teachingly. Always instructing. We bring the Word of God to bear in people's lives. Why do we preach the Word of God? Well, there's three reasons in this text. I have to move quickly. I don't know any human reason why we should preach the Word of God. I'll just be real honest with you. Why should we preach the Word of God? Does it benefit us? Does it make people like us more? I don't think so. By human appraisals, there's really no reason why we should preach the Word of God. But Paul gives us the reasons right here in the text. And there's three of them. And the first reason is in verse 1. And that's the imminence of Christ. The imminence of Christ. A literal reading of this verse says, I charge before or in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, the one being about to judge the living ones and the dead ones, and by the appearing of Him and the kingdom of Him. And then he says, preach the word. Uh, there's something missing in your English translations here, and, and I, think it's, I think it's kind of a, a sad um, a sad note because I think it actually changes the way you would understand the verse. And it's, it's, a, it's a word called, it's a verb mellow in the Greek. And what does the word mellow mean? It means he's about to. He's being about to. And it's not there in your text. Some of you may have it. But it means that it's a description of Jesus. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, the one being about to judge the living and the dead. He could come at any moment is the point. He could come at any moment. And at His appearing, when He comes to establish His kingdom, He will judge the living and the dead. The living and the dead, by the way, is everybody. Everybody who has ever lived, ever. That's what we're talking about. And it's, it's the living who are alive that is coming. That's a verb. And the dead ones, the noun. It's, it's everybody who has ever lived and died and everybody who is going to be alive when He returns. That's everybody. I don't know of anybody else. Right? That means everybody is going to be judged. And Paul is charging Timothy with this. He said, how is this a reason, though, is the question. Well, to urge someone, one writer said, by an event is to cite the happening as a reason why the command is given and why it must be obeyed. Let me read that for you again. To urge someone by an event is to cite the happening as a reason why the command is given and why it must be obeyed. See, Paul anticipated the return of Christ in his own lifetime. Right? First Thessalonians 4, he said, We who are alive and remain, what? We will be caught up together with him in the air, right? So this is an argument for the imminent return of Christ, and it's a reason why we need to preach the Word of God. Why do we need to preach? Because Christ is coming at any moment. Right? We preach the Word of God because time is short. As David said last week, it's urgent. It's urgent that we preach the Word of God. The number of the dead ones who will be judged is far greater than the alive ones. And they're dying in droves every day without the Gospel. The Gospel is urgent, folks. This is a solemn charge. Paul is binding Timothy here with a solemn charge. He's calling God and Christ Himself themselves as witnesses to this charge. So why do we preach the Word of God? Because the time is short and our Savior could come at any moment. And when He comes, beloved, it will mean judgment for everybody. Everybody who is alive at the time and who has ever died, except for those who are in the church. Eternal judgment should motivate us to preach the gospel. And let me just say this. God help you if you don't feel that urgency. 
I think it means you're a walking corpse. Somebody may spend eternity in hell if you don't share the gospel with them. If they've never heard the gospel and you're their only opportunity to hear it and you reject or neglect the responsibility to share it with them, then what? They spend eternity in hell. It doesn't affect you. Folks, we need to feel the urgency. We must feel it. Second reason. Verse 3, the intolerance of the congregations. Why do we preach the gospel? Because the congregations, funny enough, don't even want to hear it. Literal read, For it shall be a season when the sound teaching not they will endure, but according to their own desires of them, they will accumulate teachers tickling the ear. That's how, that's how it literally reads. That's strong language. The, they will accumulate. It's being used metaphorically here. The, the congregations will pile up or they will surround themselves. They will gather unto themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. The word not is really emphatic here. The sound teaching not they will endure, but according to their own desires, very strong contrast, but according to their own desires, they will accumulate for themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear, that will tickle their ears. They will not endure. They will not bear with sound teaching. Their own desires will cause them to round up weak-kneed preachers who will tell them what they want to hear. Forget biblical truth. We want to feel good about ourselves. My self-esteem is suffering here. I want you to tell me happy things. I want warm fuzzies. You folks know as well as I do. I mean, this is not news to you. In that the word tolerance drives this culture. Right? The more we hold to biblical truth, the more intolerant we begin to sound. And interestingly, though, if you look back at the text with me, it's the congregations that won't tolerate the preaching. It's ironic. They will not listen to the preaching. They will not listen to sound doctrine. They don't want to hear it. Christian congregations will want their own desires met. And we see this very thing happening already today. And desires lead them to installing these teachers... And they do it on purpose so that these teachers will tell them what they want to hear. And when they don't like this show, they get the preacher on the run and they drive him out of town. Bring in somebody else who will tell us what we want to hear. And Paul instructs Timothy in light of this, don't you dare, Timothy, cave into the latest crazes. Don't you do it. Don't you cave into the temptation to redefine biblical terms. You say what God said, Timothy. Stay with the Word and let the chips fall where they may. You preach the word, Timothy. Tickling the ears, by the way, it's an interesting phrase. It's talking about a message that's tailored to the hearer. It's actually not even talking about the preaching. It's talking about the hearer. This is a problem today. People don't want to be told they're sinners. Medical problems, yes. Addictions, yes. Low self-esteem, yes. Sinners, no. I don't think so. I have a problem. I don't have a sin problem. I have a condition. See, we're expected as preachers to sort of tell people how good their life could be if they would just take Christ and put him on top of the pile and add him to the mix and everything else will be great. But folks, preaching the Word means preaching radical transformation. It's a complete change. It is not an extreme makeover. It's death to self and it's life in Christ. There is no, there is no in-between. 
There is no in-between. See, in a world that is increasingly intolerant of Christendom and the truth, we need to cling to it. It's all we have. It's all we have. So two out of the three reasons so far why we need to preach the Word of God is the imminence of Christ, the intolerance of the congregations, and third, we see it right there in verse 4, the indifference of the crowds. The indifference of the crowds. And again, to smooth out the English, they've dropped something in the text here, but there's a, a stronger contrast than what you're getting in the text. And it says, And from, on the one hand, the truth hearing, they'll turn away, and on the other hand, to the myths, they will turn aside or go astray. There's a, on the one hand and on the other hand there that you don't see. The crowds will be indifferent to the truth. They will prefer instead to hear lame myths. And I am talking lame. They'll reject the truth. They'll turn aside to myths. In, in Timothy's day, there was an abundance of myths swirling around. Right? Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. So these are not just Jewish and pagan myths, but all kinds of pagan myths and practices swirled around Ephesus and Crete at the time. You can look at 1 Timothy 1.4, 1 Timothy 4.7, Titus 1.14. Just write those down. You don't have to turn there now. But these were sort of legendary tales that the false teachers were talking about. It characterized them in that day. In our day, it's no different. We have all the isms, right? We have all the isms. We have open theism. Open theism. How many of you know what open theism is? Raise your hands. It's a heresy. Watch out for the heresy. It's out there. There's books all over about it. We have the new perspective on Paul. We've misunderstood all along what Paul was talking about. From the Reformers on, they, they never really understood the context of Paul's preaching. Really? Wow. Folks, there's no doubt about it. People find it much easier to believe elaborate, manufactured tales and myths than they do the truth. You know this. You go to people's doors. I mean, you get all kind of weird answers. Where do you think you're going to go when you die? Oh, I don't believe in God, but I believe in heaven and hell. Where do you get that information from? Well, it's just what I think. Actually, I think this is hell now, so everybody gets to go to heaven later. How many of you have heard that one? People reject the truth because they favor the myths. But our preaching of the truth is never dependent upon its reception, is it? It shouldn't be. The crowds are indifferent to the truth. And we have really nothing else to say to them apart from the truth of the Word of God. You can't out-clever the clever. You certainly out aren't going to outlie the deceivers. You don't want a personality cult following you around. So say what God said. Preach the Word. God's Word is eternal truth. Your words are not. Don't make up stuff just to get somebody to try to believe the truth. You know, like, like every other man on the planet, I always wanted a Dremel Moto tool. I heard an amen over here. How many of you know what a Dremel Moto tool is? That's right. It's a glorious little drill-like device. It has a thousand different attachments. And I bought one on sale. I finally bought one. And you know how the story ends. How many times do you think I've used it? <laughs> I never use it. I never use this beautiful little toy. I still, when I need to drill something, get out my drill. I still use my drill. I think that's kind of what Paul is telling Timothy here. Stick with the drill, Timothy. 
Forget about all the little attachments. Stick with the Word of God. Don't just know about the Bible. Know the Bible. Don't just talk about the Bible. Preach the Word of God. And you will be a success in God's eyes. Herald and proclaim the Word of God to a desperately lost culture, Timothy. They don't need tolerance. They need the truth. This is a Bible. Right? Preach it. Preach it. The inspired Word of God is profitable for many, many things, but primarily it is adequate to make you as a man of God or a woman of God or a person of God fit for the Master's use, equipped for every good work. Preach it. It should be the center of all you do. This is, a, this is an exhortation for all of us, folks. We should be people of the book. Amen? We should know our Bibles. We are people diligently pursuing Christ and what? Courageously proclaiming Him in season and out of season. Preach the Word. Got to move on. The second fundamental duty that we need to do is to practice the will of God. You see this in verse 5. Again, four more commands. Four more commands. We've already had five, and now there's four more. And then he says there are four ways in which, in which I want you to flesh out God's will for your life, Timothy. And I believe for us this morning they're instructive. Four descriptions of what this looks like in the text here to practice the will of God. First, be sober in all things. This is the only one of all the commands, by the way, that is a present active. Meaning, do it continually. Do it all the time. Be sober. And it, and it actually controls the next three commands that he's going to tell him. This is the attitude that controls all the activities that he's supposed to do. Be sober in all, is what it says. And the idea of sober-minded here means... Literally, to stay sober from wine. Paul is using it as a metaphor here. Like over in Ephesians 5.18, it says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's the same idea. The idea of being drunk is the opposite of this. It is to be sober. It could be translated self-controlled, clear-headed, free from every form of mental and spiritual excess. But notice the emphasis. Look back at the text with me. Notice the emphasis at the front side. But you, Timothy, you see that? But you be sober in all things. So Timothy is to keep his mind free from the mental and the spiritual intoxication which is experienced by those with this sort of morbid craving for that which is sensational and novel. In other words, the false teachers. Don't be like these false teachers, Timothy. Don't give in to the latest cravings, but... You be sober. You be sober-minded, Timothy. And in light of the charge in verse 1, it's not surprising that Paul would include this idea of sobriety. Eschatology usually motivates believers to soberness. When you start thinking about the end, it ought to give you a wake-up call. But Paul says here, be sober in all things. Stay alert. Do not become sluggish but be being continually sober-minded about the reality of what you've been called to. Beloved, there is a sobriety about knowing what we know. Isn't there? There should be. Every opportunity we miss may mean another soul in hell. Now, by God's design, we are what we are, but at times, I've got to tell you, the burden is great. The burden is great. And I know God is sovereign. I believe in the sovereignty of God. But I also believe in our stewardship of the gospel. And every person you neglect to share the gospel with could be another soul registered at the gates of hell. Think about it. Think about it. It's sobering. 1 Peter 1.13 
Don't turn there. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Eschatological again. And he's telling him, sober up. Sober up. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Again, eschatological. End times. The end is near. 1 Peter 5.8 Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do we preach eminence? <laughs> you better believe we preach eminence. Christ is coming, beloved. He's coming. See, as pastors, ultimately our job in ministry is what? It's to prepare people for death. Think about that with me. Ultimately, is that not our goal in ministry? To prepare people to die, because when they die, who are they going to face? They're going to face their Creator. And beloved, the statistics are in. One out of one dies. And after death comes what? Judgment. That is sobering. See, we like to hide death in our culture. We like to put it away in the closet. We don't like to see it. But we need to prepare people for it. You all have an appointment with it. Everybody in this room. So sobriety is the encompassing attitude which should govern the way Timothy was to handle the next three commands, as I said in this text. The next one is endure hardship. Endure hardship. And this is actually an active verb. This is not a passive verb. This does not just mean let, let hardship come upon you and just deal with it. This is bear up. Bear up under hardship. Bear up. Act courageously under affliction. See, Timothy was going to face persecution. Indeed, everyone who desires to live godly will. Right? Hardship and ill treatment, as the Apostle Paul did, yet he was to face these things without a dullness of his senses. See, we may, we may suffer hardship and ill treatment as we proclaim the gospel and minister to people, yet that should not cloud the sobriety of what we're doing. Paul tells Timothy to bear up under the hardships, face the challenges head on, be courageous, Timothy. And this is a hard one for us because we're a comfort-loving generation. We love our comfort. And the more comfort we get, the more comfort we want. So when difficulties come in life, we get so hung up on what we think we deserve and the problems that we're going through, we lose sight of what God has called us to. We lose the sense of sobriety very quickly. So the time for us to prepare is not in the face of conflict, but during the downtimes. Right? We need to gird up our minds continually so that when the trials come, then we'll be able to face them the way we ought to. We don't want to be like that. I'm going to use another sports analogy. We don't want to be like that little ball in indoor racquetball, right? Ping, 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 ping getting knocked all over the place by the circumstances, we want to be steadfast. So stand firm. Endure hardships as a good soldier. Third, do the work of an evangelist. Uh, this is interesting. The word work is placed forward for emphasis. Work, do, of an evangelist. This is very emphatic. and he's say, I think what he's saying is that Evangelism is hard work. I mean, evangelism is hard work. An evangelist is one who preaches the good news, right? It's over in Ephesians 4.11. This is a high calling to do the work of an evangelist. At the time, there's only one person ever referred to as the evangelist, and that would be Philip in Acts 21.8. And here, Timothy is being told, to do the work of an evangelist, but that doesn't mean he's gifted at it. It's hard work. 
And evangelism does not come easy to us, beloved, unless you're gifted at it, of course. And I'm not. It's hard work. I get a lump in my throat every time I talk to somebody, just like everybody else, just like every one of you. I want people to like me. I want to be liked. I'm just like everybody else. But evangelism is hard work, and the gospel means dying to self and what you want and living for what Christ wants. Preach the word. It's hard work. So you've got to be disciplined about evangelism. You've got to schedule it. You've got to make a plan. I'm going to use a third sports analogy. You ought to be impressed by now. One of my favorite tennis players of all time, John McEnroe, No, seriously, he was a very gifted tennis player. Very, very gifted. But he was not the most disciplined guy in the world, was he? He could have won a lot more tournaments. He could have had a much bigger resume. But he got a little flaky, though. He was out of shape. He was not prepared. Folks, we need to be disciplined. We don't want to be like John McEnroe, who's got the talent and the gift, and we've got everything. We've got the Word of God, and we don't use it. Command here is very emphatic. Work, you do, of an evangelist. It's, it's working hard. Evangelism is hard work. It's the front lines of the spiritual battle. And it gets discouraging at times. And he's saying, don't let discouragement keep you from doing what you know you should be doing. Stay sober about it. Uh, just a side here. Remember, let's, let's remember that making converts isn't the goal of evangelism. Making converts isn't. It's making disciples. The Great Commission is not go and make converts. It's go and make disciples. So apply yourself to sharing the gospel with those around you. Work hard at it. Make disciples. Make disciples. It's a, it's a commitment to engage in a relationship with somebody, not just drop the bomb and move on. It's to share your life with somebody. I'll let you in on a little secret, okay? Don't tell anybody. My worst nightmare is seeing the list of people who I let slip away without ever saying a word to them. I fear that I am going to see that list one day and have to give an account for it. And it scares me to death, beloved. Be being sober-minded. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. And finally, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. The word fulfill here literally means to fill full. And the word ministry is the word where we get the word deacon. It's the word uh, service. So some see this as just reinforcing the idea that Timothy is to preach. And as he preaches and evangelizes, he'd be fulfilling his ministry. But I think it's more than that. I think Paul is telling Timothy that his first and primary duty is to preach the gospel. As an evangelist, he's to share the good news of the gospel in every situation, in every season. That is his primary calling, yet he's not to neglect the service to God's people in the general sense either. He's to give equal weight to that duty as well. Preach the gospel and serve God's people. This is what God has for you. God has called you by His grace and by His mercy. This is God's will for your life. And you must practice these things, Timothy, in order to abide in His will. Give yourself to them, Timothy. And these are broad enough for all of us to apply to our walk of faith as well. Beloved, do you even know what the will of God is for your life? You can't practice what you don't know, and you can't know it unless you look here. This is the Word of God. 
This is God's revealed will. It seems to me this passage fits the Christian life pretty well. These truths fit here for us this morning, don't they? God would have us to be sober-minded. God would have us to endure hardship and to bear up under it. God would have us to do the work of an evangelist. God would have us to fulfill our ministry and to serve his people. Each of us, beloved, have been given a spiritual gift that should be employed for the good of the whole. I'll just conclude with this. I want you to stop and evaluate yourselves here just for a moment, okay? Don't miss this opportunity. I want, to ask, I want you to ask yourself two questions. Okay? Two questions. Do you preach or proclaim the Word of God to anyone? And there's a second part of that. Have you ever? Have you ever? Second question. Do you serve the body of Christ in any capacity... And there's a second part to that one. Do you have any idea what God's will is for your life? If the answer to these questions is no, then how do you think God would evaluate you? Would he consider you a success according to his standards? Would he say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or would he say, get out of my sight, you worthless slave? The question is, if you are in the worthless slave category this morning, then I would like to talk to you after the service. I'll be right down over here in the corner. Don't walk out of here, folks, if your life is not right with God. Don't do it. And it's not just... What have you done for me in the past? But what are you doing for me now? Right now. If you want to be a success in the eyes of God, then preach the Word of God and practice the will of God. And God will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You did what I gave you to do. Let's pray. Our Father, these words are indeed a solemn charge for each and every one of us. Father, what a tremendous gift you've given us in the Scriptures, but also what a tremendous responsibility. I pray, our Father, that we would be people characterized as people of the book, that we would proclaim your truth to a lost and dying world, and that, our Father, we would practice your will for our lives in each and every situation. Father, give us the courage to live as believers, to stand firm in the face of affliction, to endure hardship as good soldiers of Christ. Father, the truth is desperately needed, and we have it in our hands. Help us, Father, to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.